day lined up here, and um, we, this is the first year that Catalyst has sort of taken over the weekend. So last night we shared a powerful time of worship and prayer. Um, for those of you who braved the snow and were with us, um, we spent time listening to God. We spent time praying over this weekend. And so if you weren't there, I just want you to know you were there. We prayed for you. We prayed for every person who would be here today and tomorrow um, and for just our larger Forest Brook family. So um, you're covered and you're with us too. And we're excited for today. Today is to learn and experience. It is for fresh vision. It is for um, new energy and purpose around the kingdom. And we have um, a fresh voice here to speak to us today, um, Jesse Sidergo. He's somewhere in the building. He's getting a banana. He's getting a snack. He will be in in just a moment. Um, But we're excited to hear from Jesse today. Um, So he's going to have three sessions for us, two this morning and one after lunch. On the back of the little book we handed out in your bag, you'll see the um, schedule for the day. So we're going to really try and keep on that. We're already 15 minutes behind. So (laughs) not really. Um, so, so yeah, so please try and come back from break and lunch quickly. We want to get you out of here by 3 o'clock for sure. Um, thank you for spending this Saturday with us. We know that's a, it's a big thing to give up a Saturday and to spend it here. And we're glad that you are. Um, okay, I have a quick giveaway. Okay, so we are giving away a couple of different books today. In your bag, we are looking for somebody who received, two people who received a yellow card, with a big number one and a big number two. Those are the ones I'm looking for right now. If you receive that in your bag, lift it high above your head, you are the lucky winner of Mark Batterson's Whisper. This is an awesome book. If you haven't read it, do we have any winners? Winner, winner, no, that does not count. That does not count. Does anyone have the winning bags with the yellow card? Oh, Alan? You're a winner as well? Okay, here you go. It's real. Oh, no, it's, so it's a yellow card. It's a yellow, that's okay. It's, a, it's just a yellow card folded in half with the number, oh, we have a number four over here. Zelda, can you hold that card up so people know what they're looking for? She might win something later on. Number four, okay. You know what, hit me up later if you're a number one or number two. I have those for you. Oh, woohoo, okay. Jim, can you pull up these? Probably can. Yeah. Okay, so if you just joined us and you're in the back section, if you are comfortable, we're going to invite you into the rounded seats in the front so we can be close up here together. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to pass this over to Jesse in just a minute, but um, as we get started today, um, I wonder if we can do something together to just sort of get ourselves ready um, to... Um, listen and to engage with today fully. So I'm going to ask you if you are comfortable to stand to your feet. Um, We're going to do something. It's um, outlined in your workbook, but you don't need that now. We can take it home for later. This is adapted from the work of Richard Foster, um, palms down, palms up. And so this is just a way to get ourselves sort of in the right posture, um, in the right heart space to hear and to be ready for today. So close your eyes with me. Um, You can put your hands out in front of you, palms down. So this, um, this is a posture of surrender. And most high God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this beautiful day and the beautiful sunshine. We thank you that you reign over all. 
and we boldly and humbly approach your throne this morning. I just want you to take a moment just in the quiet of your heart and your mind to surrender. What do you need to release this morning? What do you need to let go of or just to set aside any distractions, things taking up space um, where they shouldn't be today? And just surrender those things to his lordship. We surrender to you. And now flip your hands so your palms are facing upwards. And this is a posture of receiving. So Holy Spirit, we receive you here today. And each one of us move freely among us today. We also receive your goodness, God, and your grace over us. We receive the truth that we are children of God. And that we are fully known and deeply loved. I just want you to, again, in the quiet of your heart, take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit today specifically to you to move and to poke and to convict and to compel and to speak to you clearly. We are ready, God, to receive from you today. Lord, bless this time. Bless Jesse now as he comes and leads us today. Cover this day. Lift, we lift high the name of Jesus over this place today. And we give you all of this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesse, if you want to come on up. together for a while, and so I hope you like me. <laughs> a lot of talking. So today, uh, I appreciate, first of all, the opportunity to be here. Um, I know Jim from a long time ago. Uh, I knew Jim when we were in, I was in high school. <clears throat> I'm not sure if they mentioned this already, but um, that's my interaction with him. And I haven't seen him much since. And then he calls me up and says, hey, you want to come here? So He's basing everything based on my resume up to uh, high school, so <laughs> just know that. <laughs> um, you know, who knows? I could have, like, I have a whole bunch of heresy since then. Um, but just want to mention first that um, just want to, just kind of for a moment, want to give you a picture of the, how I met Jim, because it's, it's kind of important to hear. Is, um, so I was in high school. That's when I started basically doing a lot of ministry in high school. And, you know, it's like how legitimate is it at that time? But in high school, a lot of things happened to me. So um, I just want to begin a little bit with my narrative because I think it's important for you to know who I am before we get into this. Uh, I can talk a lot of, a lot of concepts, but what, what's the backdrop of who I am is important um, to, to kind of get a picture of where we're going here today. And so... In high school, I happened to do a lot of ministry in a Christian fellowship in a high school. Um, and, and in my high school, we created a Christian fellowship. It, it became quite large. It became a, a gathering of like 80 to 100 people on a weekly basis. It was the largest campus gr group. Um, and, it, 
And it was a testimony of us, like, figuring out in our high school days what it was to listen to the Lord and to just follow after him. And when you're in high school, you don't know any better. You don't know anything. So you just have to lean desperately on the Spirit. And, and the main thing, reason I want to mention this is that it, it grew into something where we had a lot of different fellowship groups um, throughout Toronto coming, gathering together. It became a gathering every year of 5,000 people coming at Mel Asman Square in North York. Um, and, and it was a magical moment, like something I could never recreate ever again. Um, but in that time, um, we had Christian fellowships all over the place coming together, celebrating and worshiping God. And we would meet weekly on Tuesdays, and we would come every Tuesday in a certain church in this uh, big open space. And high school students from all over um, would come together, and we would pray for the city. And that's where, that's my upbringing is in that. I, I grew up also in a pastor's home. I Father and mother is a pastor of a church, Indonesian church in, in, uh, in North York. And, and that's what I grew up in the ministry. Didn't have much of a rebellious phase. I stayed in line and I just kind of was brought up well in, in my parents' house. Um, but I just, yeah, well, I know I'm, pastor, I'm a pastor's kid. I know. I, and, and so in that time, one thing I just want to do is just I, I do want to honor Jim for a moment. Um, and that's the reason why he brought me here, so that I can honor him. Uh, no. But because in those times, I was a high school student, and we were doing a lot of things, and we had a lot of questions from different pastors of what we were doing. But I just remember um, the support that Jim gave. There's a few leaders who really supported us at that time. He was a youth pastor at a church at that time, um, and he was uh, just validating us, um, giving us uh, feedback and all that kind of and I just remember those particular leaders at that time in my high school meant a lot to me, whether I knew them really well or not, um, because they validated what we were doing. And it was, the, it was really the start of my ministry. So I just want to give a shout out to Jim, just to start off, because that's, that's an honor, you know, like. All right, so to begin, um, I had, after high school, <laughs> I ended up coming, uh, doing uh, doing being a youth pastor at my father's church uh, for a few years. And through that time, I was, I was the event guy, okay? Like, I loved, you know, events. I loved putting on big productions. Um, we did that thing, right, in Melasma Square, 5,000 people. I was the epitome of this attractional church model, you could say, where we would try to engage our culture really well. And I loved that stuff. And then suddenly... It came to me that I had no Christian friends, <laughs> non-Christian friends. I had no interaction with people who are marginalized. or uh, it, would, it would be very difficult for me to, to be, I was very much a part of Christendom, you could say, um, very churched. And um, something hit me when I was going to do mission trips in Indonesia. I would go every year throughout my university years. And every time I would go, something would hit me a little bit differently and then I got this book one time, it's called Organic Church, that um, kind of rocked my world. And it just kind of made me think for a moment, am I making disciples or am I just putting on church? And uh, through that deconstruction of my ecclesiology, they call it, like my, my thinking about church and like how to structure church, and a deconstruction of that, I came to an understanding that um, like I need to be personally engaged um, with the harvest field. And it's as simple as that. I thought to myself, I should invest my time into the mechanism of the church, which will be the entity that will reach the world, right? Me personally engaged, yes, maybe I'll do that here and there, like um, 
you know, at school or whatnot. I'll do those things. But really, my main thrust is through the church, and the church is going to be that beacon. And I found myself needing to get in touch because I was thrust. I was like a, you know, early, you know, child movie star who was thrust into ministry really fast and like kind of went quickly. And so I found that like uh, I was being in positions where I would have to speak early on in my life um, and I felt like I needed my integrity, the integrity of my life to be intact, right? And so I quit ministry and I started to just find people who were um, hard to reach and people who were um, big in addiction and I started to just focus on just a few people to disciple who were not going to church and who would never go step into a church. And it was those years that I was just gallivanting around, figuring that out, uh, just on my own, really, and, um, and starting to engage in what it means to be doing incarnational ministry, all right? And so, just to quickly go through my story, after that, I ended up um, seeing a girl that I liked, and um, that girl ended up being my wife, uh, who are now married over 10 years now, and um, she was in Boston, so then suddenly I felt called to do ministry in Boston um, <laughs> from the Lord. Um, it was a call from God to reach those people and to um, get married. So I brought a ring in a sock drawer. I remember putting my ring and hiding it and dro- driving to Boston, and I moved to Boston. And while I was in Boston, me and another uh, pastor who was starting a church, we decided to come together and plant a church together. So we planted a church um, with, with all these, you know, new thoughts in my mind about what it is to, to be a church for the harvest field rather than a church for people who are already church, right? And so we spent, I spent five years in Boston uh, planting a church we are called the Fenway Church. And we were right in the Fenway. It was very hard to have Sunday services in the Fenway on a Sunday when the Red Sox were playing because we're right in there and parking is $35, I remember. Um, so it was hard. Uh, you had to be really committed to come to church on that day. Um, so we were there, started a church. It was in a club actually called Church, ironically. It was a club bar scene thing that we just used on the, on the Sunday mornings to engage that crowd. Um, and so we would come there on a Sunday. We would um, try all these different things. And just to give you a sum up of my five years there, my main focus, and this is what we'll focus on in the latter parts of our time here, my main focus in that church was to raise lay pastors um, within, our, you know, within our church. We, we didn't want to be a, a church that was highly reliant upon the clergy. We wanted to see the empowerment of the laity. And so when I say empowerment of the laity, it's not just for us to say, hey, you know, um, just do more. We needed to equip them in the same way that we wanted the kind of commitment we wanted from them. We needed to provide substance to lay leaders so that they can function in this high capacity that we would want, want them to. And so I created a whole system so that baptisms were done by these lay leaders who are, you know, lay uh, small group leader pastors or house church pastors. They would function to do communion. They would know how to, to uh, baptize people. They would know how to learn how to give many sermons. They would know how to make disciples, all these things. We tried to push as much into them as possible because we didn't want to work that hard. Um, <laughs> no. Um, we, we just we felt like it's just not sustainable to hold all of the marbles and really, I'm the only one gaining something when I preach, really, because I'm the one studying it all, and you're getting a little bit of a dose. We, we wanted to share the blessing of being in the process of, like, developing things and making disciples, because it's that that's actually part of your own discipleship. And so I was hogging, we felt, as the 
preachers and the pastors and the leaders, we were hogging all the good discipleship moments because we were the ones doing it all. And so we wanted to push that as much as possible to as far into the ordinary lives of lay people. And so we had to think, what are the things that matter? What are the things that don't matter? What are the things that every believer should be doing? What is, what is specific to leadership? What is specific to a paid clergy? What is specific to all those things? That was my five years, and that's when I was doing some school as well. After that, because I felt like I had to be a disciple of Christ throughout that time, um, again, I felt this conviction once again that I was in the church, um, you know, after going away from the church and trying out my experimental, coming back into the church, um, even in the church plant, aggressive church plant to the harvest field, something in me was saying when I was bumping into scripture, it kept on saying to me, Jesse, um, you know, Jesus was with the poor a lot. And, uh, and we were trying to engage marginalized populations and different in our church, but then they would always stay on the fringes. And I would get like confused, like how do we bring them to the center? Like, you know, I, I remember particularly a single mother with three kids would come and, and I just never was able to figure out how she would incorporate. And it was bothering me a lot. And so when I, me and my wife decided to move back to Toronto, um, you know, we're starting a family and, you know, our, both of our families over here and uh, my, my wife's family in particular um, is like the only family here um, and they don't have any extended relatives. And so we felt necess necessity to come back. When we came back to Toronto, I decided to get a, uh, try done something new. Um, because I felt like it wasn't my gifting, I would say. Uh, it's not necessarily even my calling, I would say. But I felt in me that if Jesus was with the poor, then all that stuff that Jesus says when he's engaging with the poor... As he's saying it, it's to a particular audience. And so if I'm trying to apply the words of Jesus in my own life, and I do not have similar interactions with similar people that he engaged with of different socioeconomic, you know, and a demoniac over here, and if I'm not engaging with them, it doesn't matter how much I know about the word of God in that time, I can't really apply it live because it's just an, it will always remain an abstract concept for me. It's never going to flesh itself out. It's like, I know the Good Samaritan story. That's wonderful. Like, how many times do I engage with someone on the street, down on the ground, and help them out? Do I ever bring them to a hotel and pay for their, you know, do I ever do that? No. Um, but I know Jesus thinks that's good to do. <laughs> so I felt, let me just immerse myself. So I stopped ministry for a bit, and I just said, let's go into the work for a nonprofit uh, Social sector. So I went to a Christian nonprofit called Young Street Mission that many of you might know. It's been around for a while downtown. So I went to Young Street Mission and I started working in a drop in center. And this is a drop in center for street youth. And I was totally out of my element, like so out of my element. Um, I'm a guy of words, <laughs> I'm a guy who likes to um, engage intellectually and talk about these things. And I was there, not able to function in my gifting, you could say. Sitting in a drop-in, feeling kind of useless, going, meeting with prostitutes and pimps and uh, people who are addicts and people who are on the streets and people with erratic behavior, high, high mental health problems. And I, I just, everything in that world, I didn't know how to use any of my giftings in that context. Um, but it's a place that I started to fall in love, you could say. Um, uh, and, and that's the place where, for the next seven years, I was there for seven years, that next seven years was uh, transformative for me, and it allowed me to um, adjust my theology significantly. 
Because um, when you engage uh, with the poor, it does something differently to you. It makes you think to sing like songs of lament a little bit. It makes you think about a lot of unsuccessful stories. I was in a church context where like, come on up, let's give a testimony. And someone would come up to the stage and give like this testimony. And there's always like some kind of good ending, you know, in every testimony we hear in church. But there were so many bad endings <laughs> um, in our youth and, you know, so many death, like so much death in youth is tragic. So when I experienced those times of death, um, literal death, and also like death of hope and um, disillusionment and recovery addiction, recovery addiction, and seeing that pattern, oh man, it's not so simple for us to say those testimony stories where someone comes and be saved and then I'm like, what happens in the sanctification of that person? After they've been justified and they see the, that sanctifying part is a long process and there's de- in, ebbs and flows. And so that also has adjusted my theology to consider all those complexities. And so that's the past seven years. Um, and then I ended up doing a little bit of school somewhere in there too while I was working there. Um, and I realized at the end of my time there, which was just in the end of 2018, I felt... This increasing feeling in me, um, and I'll close with this part of my story, is that um, we were an institution. We were, a, we were an institution as a social sector engaging the poor. I can get a youth a job. I can get them health care. I can get them housing. They get there. A lot of them actually go to, you know, Scarborough and low-income housing there or whatnot. We get them the spots, but there's no community. You know, so they get it, they can functionally get all these things in order, but then at the end of the day, uh, they come back to the streets. Why? Because their community is in the streets. Why? Because we were doing such a good job creating community with them in our center, they would come back to our center. So then it was a problem. And I'm like, we need bodies of people out in these neighborhoods that can adopt these youth into their communities because we're not meant to make build these isolated existences. And if you're a marginalized population, you can't go to a neighborhood and, like, just start making friends and, like, you know, you have a lot of barriers that's causing you to do... So then I just had a thesis in my mind, which, is, which has led me to school, is that I believe that um, there is a space between this professionalized social sector and our homes that are very private, are becoming increasingly privatized, you know? We just go into our garages and go into... Our, like, it's increasingly private on one side, and our public... Uh, Engagement with the poor is becoming increasingly professionalized. Like, you know, you fall in line, you're a number. Like, literally, that's becoming more and more. And only experts can gauge here, you know? So it's either the poor is like, you're my brother, or you're like, you're my client, you know? And that's the two things. And I find that there's a middle ground. And I think the middle ground should probably be occupied a lot by the church <laughs> because the church is a perfect community that actually is in part of our theology to embrace the other and to be able to wrestle with that. And then, and we have a theology of grace that allows for forgiveness over and over again after there's lots of falling down and up. That's like part of our ethos, right? So it's like there's a middle ground there that I think the church should occupy. So long story short, I'm not going to bore you with my thesis, but that's, that's what it was about. So, um, so that brings me to today and, you know, Again, I don't fully reasons why Jim just thought my high school days was valid to come in. It just came random in their mind to come. And so the last part of my story is that I, after that, I started consulting with churches to help them to engage socially, right? 
Um, and I started to do that, and then suddenly Tyndale called out of nowhere and said, would you like to uh, teach? And so I surprisingly got a role there, which was really not my plan. Uh, and then I got a role, and I'm, now I'm teaching at, at Tyndale, uh, contextual theology and how to engage with marginalized populations. So that's what I'm doing right now, okay? All right, that's enough about me. Um, no questions about my story, sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so with, with those things, uh, just to let you know, I have also a, a wife and uh, three kids. Three kids, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and a uh, baby seven-month little fatso in my house right now. Um, and let me start with this. Today, what I'm going to do, I'm going to be all over the place. I'm just going to warn you. I am not a very systematic way of talking. I'm not going to be your three-point sermon guy. I'm not really like that. But I'll give you some structure, and we'll go with this, okay? Um, and, and the way I'm going to structure it is, is, is this. My, my sense as I came here, and a lot of prayer coming into today and, and, and thinking through um, a lot of places that we can go. Here's the gist of it. Um, my sense is that, and just even coming into this church here and this neighborhood, and just for myself, I, I'm just going to assume this is, sorry to make this assumption, but this is more of a middle class kind of church, right? Uh, this is for, for the most part. And I am middle class myself, and this is where I come in. And the conversations I have with my friends right now, because we're all having kids and we're all just starting them getting into school, is that I, I had these conversations with my friends, oh, where are we going to live? Oh, which school is the best school? We're looking at all these districts. We're looking at all these things of like, what is the best place for me to go to so that my kids can have the best friends that will be very like, you know, not of this world. And like, I'm trying to think of all these things to plan so that I have the perfect um, route for my children to succeed and be, um, you know, proclaim the gospel and all these different things. I'm trying to think about the best scenario, all the cushions around them, just like all around my house to prevent them from hitting a corner or whatnot. That's what I naturally think. And you know why? I can kind of do that. You know, I have some resources in order to choose where I live. Well, somewhat. <laughs> to choose where you live, right? Yeah. Uh, I have the ability to kind of carve out in this concrete jungle of Toronto I have a lot of control. Like, as I was having these conversations with my friends, it just sensed, it just kind of erupted to me. I have so much control. Like, I can look at my app and know what weather it is. I'm going to determine what type of transportation I'm going to take there. You know, am I going to walk there? Am I going to take the transit? Am I going to take the car? I have those three options, not just one, right? I have so many options to choose from based on my socioeconomic class and also the infrastructure of our city allows me to know and decide upon these things. I have, we have the luxury of, of you know, the city plowing streets, you know, we're not trapped by, we, we even have conquered, you know, nature to the point that nature is not going to stop me from getting to work, right? And then on the other hand, last year particularly, you know, um, now that I have kids, when I go camping, like, and I'm not like an avid camper at all. I'm just like such a rookie. I'm an, out, I'm an outdoor wannabe guy, okay? And so I like to buy the gadgets, and then I get out there, and I don't use them. I just, I just go out, and I try to like look like an outdoorsy person. I know I have the right clothes, flannel, and all that stuff. I can do that, but then when I get out there, I'm scared. <laughs> and like even in like Civil Point, I'm scared. Like it's this, it's not the wild at all. I'm not going to like I'll go, I'm not going to the like outback woods. I just like simple things like that. I'm like, oh, I think I hear a raccoon or something. Um, 
And I realized because I grew up in this concrete jungle of Toronto, man, it just takes a little bit for me to go into an unpredictable world of the woods of Sybil Point and, um, and, and have a tent that is not brick, that is not temperature regulated. And I would go in that context and I would feel insecure. <laughs> and that insecurity was like, this is ridiculous. This is just camping. Um, but like, I have a kid now. I don't want like some animal to eat my kid. Like, so I just, um, I have these two contrasting things where one side is like complete control and then the other side feels like it just takes, I'm so fragile. Like I'm so fragile uh, in, in, in anything that is unpredictable, anything that is nonlinear, anything that is not concrete, anything that I cannot control, it really bothers me, right? And so I start with this is because, you know, I find that because we have the ability to control so much, because we have maybe a little bit more intellect, because we have a little bit more know-how, our science is better, we can control a lot. But the benefit of, say, like the first settlers here or people who in Canada, like Canada is known to be this overwhelming wilderness, right? They said, I took a, my supervisor, her name is Mary Jo Letty, she focuses on Canada at large. She writes a lot about Canada. And she says to, like, that the early settlers coming here, they all gathered in these little garrisons. It was very different than the states. The states were very, like, progressive. Like, the states in the beginning, they came to the, to, to, to the shores and they desired to go straight to the west. They have a very, like, there was a, a trajectory of, like, conquer. But when, when, the, when the Canadians came, they, they, they gathered in these garrisons because Canada is overwhelming. Canada is like this vast, great nation, and the weather is harsh. And I'm just imagining that scene for a moment and seeing how at the mercy you are of the weather, how mercy you are at the wild. And something about just being in that environment changes your psychology, changes your spirituality, actually. It changes your view of how powerful you are, um, and the illusion we are living in right now that we have like this power and this control and that we are somewhat closer to like the Tower of Babel, you know, we're more like God than ever before. Like it's more than ever now is we're figuring all these things out. And it's troublesome because it's an illusion that we are, have arrived, you know. And the more we live in that, the less we are going to Lean on God. Just, it's just natural math. Like, the more I rely on myself, the more I developed and went to school and whatnot and had more experience, I cannot duplicate what I felt when I was in high school, just wandering and saying, let's do this event. Oh, let's do this. Let's I cannot replicate that sense of, um, you know, innocence uh, or naivete. I can't replicate that. This too much has happened. It's just so far gone. And so for us, it's important for us to decide that. So that's on one side. We feel a lot of control. But here's, this, here's the flip side to that. So when I got my job at Tyndale last year, it was just July. First of all, it was so surprising. I did not anticipate it. I, don't even, I haven't finished my PhD yet. So I'm still in the midst of it. And then I get this role. Everything is lining up. I have my third child. I just bought a house. I have my Tyndale job. Things are going well. Guess what? After, you know, all these years of my life, never, I've never experienced any kind of mental health stuff. Like, not much at all. Like, I have very little of that trauma and baggage and stuff. 
and I haven't experienced mental health in a lot of in my whole life. Suddenly, I get all this stuff, and something happens that is beyond my control. I just start having like these anxiety attacks, like out of nowhere. Like it just kind of came throughout this year, and I just reflected a lot. I would just have these erratic thoughts of um, death. And, like, there's a, you know, Brene Brown, the vulnerability woman? Yeah. So she, she says this thing about, like, foreboding joy, she calls it, um, where you're holding your child and, like, I love my kid. He's so fat. And, you know, like, and you're just like, oh, I love my kid. He's so cuddly. And then suddenly you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose my child. <laughs> and it's like this sense of, like, oh, no, like the worst thing. You're thinking all the worst things because you have something that you love so much, right? And it's called foreboding joy is that moment in time like that. And I feel like that's what I was going through a little bit. It's like the epitome for me in my personal life, the epitome of me accomplishing where I wanted to be and suddenly feeling this sense of, like, loss. I just started imagining that I would be buried alive. I would be imagining, like, someone would kidnap my child. Anyone watch the, the movie The Room? Never watch that if you have children. Like, you know, like I, the room is like someone kidnapped the girl and left her in a room and trapped her in and raped her and did all these different things. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have my, my child. Like, I watched that. I'm like, suddenly I started imagining all these things. And my wife is a psychologist, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I need a psychologist in my life. So, and she's like, she describes, she's like, anxiety is basically... When, you're, uh, when you start to feel fear is proper, right? You, you, there's an event that happens, and you, a, a level amount of fear is right. But anxiety is when you start to manifest in fear that is unproportionate to the level of risk, right? I thought that was I'm like, brilliant. That's a brilliant way to see it. And anxiety was that, where I was projecting the possibilities that are so far from the reality of my life. It's a, such a slim chance. It's like, and so in that, at the same time as I say we are in control in this city, we decide a lot, we control how warm our cars are and stuff. At the same time, what is also happening, and it might be unconscious, is this perpetual anxiety that is occurring that's making us feel this sense of insecurity, the sense of insecurity in, um, in us relying on ourselves. Because when you realize that you are God, you feel like you are God, and you realize you know you're messed up and your God is you, <laughs> You start, to, you start to feel insecure, right? I can't, it's just like how I am with, as a parent now. I'm like, what the heck am I doing as a parent? <laughs> uh, I'm a parent now, and it feels very insecure. I'm the guy who's supposed to lead this family, and I just like, oh, no, I can't lean on anyone else, and this is me. And so I begin with this, and just to get to the, just to get to the, I have no control. It's a lesson. Don't use PowerPoint. There you go. Got it. Thanks. That's okay. Thanks. Okay. All right. So? So this is the passage that I want to start with. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
And the trajectory of where I want to take us today is how to function in an atmosphere in which there is no linear path and there is no control. Instead of just saying, okay, just, just leave it to the Lord and just go and uh, blindly go into that, there's more articulation of what can be considered when you go into the unknown. Um, there's substantial maturity that requires to go in there. As much as it was very purposeful me in the beginning, like many of you in your early days as a Christian, the exploration there is wonderful and you're experiencing all these new things in this unknown world. And then suddenly you plateau because you know this world of church now and theology, you know it. And then what does it mean to push yourself out into there with all this knowledge you have and this maturity? How do you keep going with all this knowledge and maturity into here and not just say, no, 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 just stay dumb. You know, just stay ignorant. That's not the, the way to go. And that's actually a lot of the answers in a lot of sermon. You're thinking too much. Just let it go. It's not just about letting go. There's a lot of capacity built. Once that capacity has been built, how do you move forward in that capacity? Huh? Yeah. White hat trust. What does that mean? And so today, with this, that's a good thought. Um, here's a little bit of my rough overview. So I'm going to use some polarities. I know verses means a lot of things, and I just use verses to give a little bit of uncomfort in you. But um, I'm going to use these three headings to kind of view of what did not, and we'll see which order I actually end up taking. But this, these two polarities, I'm going to call it, all right? These polarities represent... Uh, sections that I'll be speaking on. And, and for one, it has to do with experts or clergy or professionals versus lay, volunteer, your ordinary person. And how, as a church, we have created this disparity within it. You're a brethren church here, right? So there is an acknowledgement of this already. It's already intuitive in your theology and how you do things. You share the pulpit, all these different things. But I'm going to keep pushing that further, further into the more ordinary person as much as possible, just to start today. And then also there is this distinction and this, this polarity and dichotomy also about structure and the need to have structure and to have some coherence, which is very necessary too, but at the same time to have some flexibility to kind of move and flow in the way in which God is going to move us. And so how do you hold both structure and, 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 and flexibility? How do you go into this unknown with some framework of a route, but at the same time saying, God, you want to move me anywhere, I will go wherever you want me to go? How do you hold those two things in tension as well? And also, there is a, there's another dichotomy I want to speak about is the the way of how we walk as, as believers, whether it's as an individual or whether it's as a collective. And I'm going to talk a lot about that because it's a, it's a particular, you know, what we're functioning in now is a very individualistic society where we do not move together. And so in order to talk about this, um, uh, 
this dichotomy here for a moment. And in all of these things, here's what I want to propose. You know, in our day and age, we have a desire to, like, solve problems, right? Um, I was listening to a podcast, and it had uh, Ashton Kutcher. And uh, Ashton Kutcher wants to save the world. And he, you know, we know him from, like, comedy and all these different things, but he's doing a lot of social good. And the thing about my generation here is that we, we, because we have so much technology and control, we want to progress and we want to change the world. And we want to have all these ambitious plans in order to conquer this world. And the thing that I find is that he was talking about how he's like, I don't think about New Year's resolutions as a year thing anymore. I think of 10 years and what can I accomplish? And he wants to, like in, in 10 years, like fix the foster care system. Like, he wants to um, get rid of all child pornography on the internet, which is actually doable by technology. He, he's, he wants to do all these things. And I, I'm like, yay, good, that's great. But it's a funny thing, like, because we have so much control. We have all this trajectory to solve problems. But then when you think about these dichotomies, they are not problems to solve necessarily, but rather tensions to hold. I would say, okay? And so I went to this training one time. It was brilliant. It had this infinity, infinity sign. A guy named Tim Arnold and his group um, had do these trainings called Healthy Tension. And so today I'm framing this just to get up, and then I'm going to be speaking a lot about the scriptures in a moment. We're going to get into Jesus and Acts a whole lot, so we'll get there for a moment, but just indulge me here. So this is not a Christian concept or whatnot, even though he is a, he is a believer. But we basically have these polarities in our life. And say, for example, what we're getting to, like, say, structure versus flexibility. So on one side, you have structure, and the other side, you have flexibility. And in my organization back in uh, Youngstreet Mission, we always ebbed and flowed between this. I always had this staff who would be like, let's just, like, let go of the flexibility. These street youth do not fall in line with all these programs that we have set. It's not set for them like that. So I have those staff, but then I also have other staff who says, no, but we need structure. We need to actually be progressing in one way or another. We need to actually have something set in stone or else everything's just gonna be ambiguous. And you'll, you'll ebb and flow based on your personality, say with this polarity. But this works for so many other things, okay? This is like uh, grace and justice. This is, you can put any kind of you know, polarity in there, whether it's me and my wife arguing about you know, whether we should have a high structure in our household and the kids can only watch this much amount of TV or whatnot. Like, we all have these, you know, whether we should be, like, letting our kids just go all over the place or do we keep them right in line. Like, we have all these arguments, and it's usually based on this kind of polarity. But the problem is, is we think we have to choose a side. That if it's this, then everything will be fine, you know? And all the structured people are saying, if you would have just listened to me and followed that the structure would be in place, then all would be well. It's a zero-sum game. That's how we feel. When really, we intuitively know it's a tension to hold, right? We know we need it. And what I loved about this diagram is because in every kind of polarity, there is a plus and a minus and a plus and a minus. And actually, in my life, I have gone all over the place, say, with flexibility and structure. 
I've gone into flexibility and realized this is chaos. What am I doing here? And it's, and, uh, but in the beginning, it's fresh. When things are flexible, you have more opportunity for innovation. You have more opportunity to think creatively. You can think on your feet. It's an exposure to something new. We're breaking new ground into something unfamiliar territory. That's wonderful. That's the positives of flexibility you can get into. But then you realize, oh, is this sustainable, you know? Is this sustainable? What kind of infrastructure are we going to use here? Like everyone's just making things up as they go, right? And everything seems in flexibility good at first, and then suddenly you come to, you will inevitably come in any kind of polarity, all of the negative things to that. And suddenly you start to dwell in those negativities. And if you're not the lead pastor, you're not the lead eldership here, you'll see sometimes there's a, something that is a good idea at first, you're with it, but then you're like, mm, and you don't necessarily have the con full control to change it. And then we start to critique it, critique it, critique it. And in the end, you will be able to, cre to critique it because there is a good and a bad side to it. So then what a lot of churches do or a lot of ministries do is they go through a season of this. It's a good season. People grumble. There's a shift in leadership or like let's change someone over. What I, and then we go to the next because we focus on the negative things. Let's get a new this <laughs> or whatnot. And we go to the other side. And we swing over because the positive sides that we longed for so much before are, uh, uh, are satisfied. But then we'll realize, man, this is really ritualistic. Man, this is really traditional. This is way too unflexible. And suddenly the person who wanted some stability over there wants to start something new. But it stopped because everything needs to be set in stone. So what happens? You go back down here. And you just keep going back and back and back and forth. Yes. Yeah. That's what we'll get to. Yes. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm going to get my best stab at it. But it's not necessarily only staying between. It's actually realizing just that this is going to happen. <laughs> just even knowing that while you're in this phase, the more you know that this is coming the more you will sober your pride in here, right? The more, like, self-aware you are. And actually, I would say, you know, if you're having an argument between this person and this person, if you want to have a constructive argument between this guy and this person right here, um, and they're arguing both sides, I would tell this person, hey, if we're going to structure our argument here, can you just focus on this and you just focus on this? Because usually our arguments is this person is highlighting this and this person is highlighting this. But imagine if you in the conversation came into the conversation and just talked about this. Me as a listener on this side would be like, oh, thank God, you know the negatives of your flexibility and can come in to the knowledge of that. And then this person does this. If we start the conversation that way, then we can get to here easily. And if both parties know that they are not the hero and that they are not the all-knowing God, then they will come into this context and this conversation with a lot more humility, right? And so, number one, I don't have a solution for this, but just knowing this <coughs> helps me greatly. And so that's kind of the structure that we have in talking about today in how we're going to um, work through these types of polarities um, in, our, in, our, in our life. I'm going to stop here for a moment. Is there a, is there a thought to this or, or a question? And I'm not going to have, by the way, a lot of answers necessary to a lot of questions. But is there any thoughts that kind of come out uh, if I just open up just the beginning of this as I, as I, as I speak?
followed by Claire Bloomberg. And then there's the other side, right? So it's constantly being heard about the rebirth of Sergey. That's right. It's natural for them. Yeah. Either or Yes. I know. And you know what? If we don't have, and I'll get to you in a second, and if we don't have the people who are a little bit more either or versus both and, we never get anything done. <laughs> I just got to say that. Like, I'm more like this, to be honest. Like, my natural disposition is more like this. But then getting things done is a very another story. I, I, someone needs some finality. And that requires a courage. So we cannot remain in this. But... In any kind of decision process or any kind of like project you're working on or any kind of ministry endeavor we're doing, we need to know that there are certain points in the planning process or the discovery process where this is very necessary. And then there is another time where we need to land. We cannot stay floating forever. And trust me, I, my generation over here, this postmodern generation where everything needs to be floating, everything needs to be abstract, everything needs to be deconstructed, we love sitting in here and we get nothing done, we'll comment on our opinions online, but we will not do anything because we're scared to make a decision because once we make a decision, there's going to be a whole lot of criticism for that decision that we have already thought about because we've done this, right? So, so do you have a... Yeah. Almost need to shepherd them into a place yes. where they can come to agreement. But if that's not present, what is the dynamic you're dealing with, especially with your generation and younger? Yeah. Uh, how do you get them to a point of blocking? Yeah, and you know what? I'm I'm opening a can of worms with this diagram because this is uh, very intriguing. And so what you're saying is true, and I. 
I don't want to get into all the details of this, but what I would say to what you were just saying there is that, first of all, yeah, these are not two equal individuals usually. Usually there is someone higher, someone lower, someone more knowledgeable, someone less knowledgeable, someone with more power, less power, all these, there's so many dynamics to this that doesn't make it this equal whatnot. Like if I'm a supervisor over someone, it's, 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 it changes the game in that conversation. And if I am the supervisor, I'm the leader, I'm probably, I wanna come in with a lot more of my acknowledgement of my own weaknesses, usually to kind of help to level the playing field. But there's a lot to this, but I wanna set this stage, and I'm gonna move on right now. I'm gonna set this stage to just note that this is that what I think is the biggest um, problem with us growing up in what I want to say modernity is that modernity has led us after the enlightenment and the way history has gone and the way that we have functioned our life in the West is that we tend to be very solution oriented. And when we talk about these, the solutions are not simple but we desire for it to be more concrete, right? And so for me, I want to, and it's especially hard in a church because we should know truth, right? We have objective reality. We think that there's an objectivity to our belief system. So when you bring these polarities in here, this is why certain denominations come out of one another because they're trying to usually emphasize a polarity in their sense that is not being done within the denomination they came from, and therefore splintering occurs, and that's what happens. Different expressions to emphasize different things. And that's how we've marshaled it, right? And we're all, but the illusion that we come to a finality, a final solution, uh, and we actually pro solve the problem, uh, is a symptom of modernity. And let me explain a little bit with modernity. And then we're gonna get into, into um, a passage over here in a moment. So. I think that this divide between uh, the expert and the volunteer has a lot to do with um, this book by Dallas Willard. Have you guys seen this move around? It's called The Great Omission. Dallas Willard talks about the great omission of the Great Commission, and he thinks it's discipleship. Right? So the great omission of the Great Commission is discipleship, and I'll loop around what, what it means for modernity here for a moment. <laughs> But just, to, just remember this, the, the, the Great Commission for a moment. So the Great Commission is, says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of age. So throughout the pioneering years of the Christian church, these words were taken for what they were. They simply took it literally. Like, there's no theological alterations to it. They just, I got to make disciples. They weren't thinking, I got to plant a church. No, they're just making disciples. They're trying to follow in the ways of Jesus. And this is the odd thing that happened is, is that as they did that, the church started to evolve. And the tenets of this commission began to lose its prominence in the life of the church. Instead of making disciples, we started to focus on making converts and baptizing them into church membership, as Willard says. And this is what leads us to the omission of the Great Commission, which is discipleship. And the emphasis on discipleship and walking with and training believers into Christ-likeness. By the way, for me, discipleship has a lot to do with growing into Christ-likeness, okay? And so in growing into Christ-likeness, um, that ended up taking a back seat to the main focus on conversion, Congregants eventually became passive spectators 
in the stands, those who listen and learn from a distance, simply given the easy-to-swallow principles from the Bible. But over time, there's started to be a gap between the paid professional clergy and the average layperson, and they began to widen that chasm. And so we found ourselves with a two-tiered system, a division in class, a hierarchy that created different expectations for different parts of the body. Leaders and pastors were expected to be militant in their pursuits for holiness, integrity, and sacrifice and gifting, while the masses were expected to simply attend, learn, and affirm the works of the ministry. I'm talking in extremities right now. <clears throat> but Charles Van Engen is uh, someone I was learning in, in during my master's. Is, uh, he, was, he says this, which, which I think is paramount, and this helps us with this first polarity that we're going to be talking about here today. And by the way, if someone wants to let me know of time, uh, just raise your hand. Let, let me know that I'm five minutes out, okay? Because I'm going to just stop at that point. We're going to continue. It's not going to be neatly tidied up at the end, I'm going to say. So it's biblical to distinct the laity in gift, function, administration, but there should not be a distinction in holiness, prestige, power, commitment, or activity. We seem to assume that the layperson in a certain discipline is one who dabbles, models, tries hard, but certainly does not have expertise. And so what I believe that has happened, this happened way before modernity happened, but what has brought into the extreme is the idea of the professional, the expert in the field. And because we gotten good at creating certain distinct roles of clergymen, the layperson finds it a little bit difficult to find its place. But what I find in this, in this quote particularly is that there is a certain distinction that should not be made. You know, I, I'm in a school right now, and I'm doing my PhD with a, a lot of Jesuits. And Jesuit priests are really intense. Like, they, like, they will die for the gospel. They, they, they are so smart. There's so much intensity over there uh, in, in, their, in their pursuits of that. And the one thing I've gotten from a lot of them is this encouragement to see the lay people around them function in the same level of intensity and commitment and sacrifice. There actually should be no distinction between the pastor and the sheep with regards to intensity to give their life for the gospel, right? It shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be like someone should commit a little bit more in integrity of their life. It shouldn't be that all those character aspects of a Christian should not be diminished. And actually, I would prefer a whole bunch of ordinary lay people who are willing to die for the gospel um, rather than a whole bunch of experts working in their category, in their field, and not having the level of integrity in their life. But modernity tells us that if you want to solve a problem, everyone should function in their expertise. And you know what? That expertise lingo has filtered into our church um, in a way to overemphasize the idea of giftings. The apostle, the pastor, the evangelist, the prophet. Suddenly, I have lots of trainings right now, and I, I, I know them. And I, I think they're helpful, too. But then it's like, what's your gifting? Because usually what your gifting is is what your calling is. Actually, not necessarily. Calling is not necessarily associated to gifting. Like, our calling could be to die for a people group. And to reach that people group, it's not using your gifting. Like, I am strong believer that my time in Evergreen, for those seven years, I was functioning out of my gifting completely, but I was definitely called, right? 
And so in that moment, I think, and by the way, calling in making it so distinct and only one thing for your entire life is, is also um, a funny, awkward thing to think about as well. And so I want to I just introduce this, 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 this book that really um, rings true to me. So I'm, if, you, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read two pages here, okay? It's, I, it's read because it's so good. I just don't want to mess it up. So this quote over here is by a guy named Robert Lupton. And Robert Lupton is someone who worked with marginalized populations. And I think it really relates here to kind of dismantle them. My whole purpose of this uh, first session is to just dismantle the, the objectivity that we see in modernity and our problem-solving nature and control. I want to dismantle that a little bit. So this is what he says. He starts off this chapter. He's working with the poor. He's working in this center. And he's a thought leader in this as well, but he's, he has a life of integrity in here. And the title of this chapter is called Kingdom Efficiency. And so Kingdom Efficiency, he starts the chapter by putting the definition of efficiency. So efficiency is the capacity to produce desired results with minimum expenditure of energy, time, money, or material. By the way, I love efficiency. Like, I love when I do two things at the same time. I went bike. I, I, I live in Etobicoke, an hour away from downtown. I love when I can bike downtown because I'm getting an exercise. I'm commuting. It's the same amount of time than taking the bus. So I love efficiency. I just want to say that off the bat. But here it is. There is something inside me that makes me smile when I see a well-run operation. Phones answered, professionally detailed, uh, details observed, appointments kept promptly, systems flowing with logical consistency. The competent execution of a well-designed plan is a thing of beauty for me. My love of efficiency is woven inextricably into the fabric of my personality. Recently, the staff of a family consultation service discussed relocating our offices. Our two rooms in a small urban church are seriously overcrowded. A constant stream of kids and church folks and people from the community make it increasingly difficult to perform necessary administrative tasks. Some days seem like one continuous interruption. It's impossible to get any work done at my office, I say to Peggy in frustration. It violates my sense of responsibility to see my desk piled high with unanswered correspondence, unopened mail, and mail, this is dating, uh, mail, and the note, notes that uh, unreturned phone calls. My efficiency loving mind tells me the solution is in the system. That's a key one. I envision a building away from the church traffic. It has ample office space, phones, and meeting rooms. We are centralized under one roof instead of operating out of homes and cars and briefcase. We better coordinate in our communication and cut down on impromptu drop-ins. And I get some work done. Work? He asks, work? What is my work? Is organizational, this starts when he starts questions. Is organizational efficiency really the bottom line? Should a clean desk and a balanced financial report be the fifth of the month, uh, report by the fifth of the month be my priority? Is my job well done when my schedule book clicks with precision, and the minutia of details are carefully covered. This would satisfy my need for order and control. But what about the kingdom of God? The fundamental building blocks of the kingdom are relationships, not programs, systems, or productivity, but inconvenient, time-consuming, intrusive relationships. The kingdom is built on personal involvements that disrupt schedules and drain energy. 
When I enter into a redemptive relationships with others, I lose much of my capacity to produce desired results with minimum expenditure of energy, time, money, and materials. In short, relationships sabotage my efficiency. <laughs> Kids sabotage efficiency. That's my, that's my line. A part of me dies. Is, the, is this perhaps what the Lord meant when he said we must lay down our lives for each other? If efficiency is a value in God's kingdom, surely it has a different definition. The one who orchestrates history doesn't seem to be in a hurry. God doesn't seem to need closure at the end of the day. Perhaps if one has an eternity in which to accomplish one's work, it's not so important to handle every urgent detail that arises. Kingdom efficiency must have an eternal perspective. How then can we earthbound ones evaluate our own level of kingdom efficiency? Obedience is the only trustworthy measure I have found. I know I am called to love people in a special sense, poor people. Since it is impossible to schedule their calamities, I must remain open to their interruptions. The seductive appeal of order which draws me away from my call. God's peace must be learned in the midst of disturbance. Disruptions are his reminders that people are more important than programs and that the ordering of my life is his business. Perhaps in the disarray of human relationships, he will reveal the true meaning of efficiency. So I read this to my class the other week, and one of the students said, I want to push back on that. And some of you might want to push back on this, and that's okay, and there's probably valid reasons too. But I'm going to stress this a bit. But he said, he said something interesting. He says, I think the kingdom of God works well when everyone is functioning in their giftings. If I'm not pastorally gifted, because these are in people who are in ministry, if I'm not pastorally gifted and I'm put in a place where I have to function pastorally when my main task is teaching the word of God or when my main task is this or whatnot, and I'm not functioning in that gifting, then, then not as much will get done. That's what he said. And also, we cannot advance the kingdom of God as efficiently or as effectively if we don't do that. And you know what? I would agree with him under the presuppositions he's going with, I would agree with him in many ways. But my question is not whether that's right. My question is whether the presupposition is right. And I think that his view of it comes out of a presupposition of solving problems, getting things done, right, and making progress. But progress is not necessarily gospel. Progress in that sense is not necessarily gospel. I think, when I look at myself, I am a product. As much as I am a product of the mind of God and Jesus and in the Bible, I am also a product of my culture. And my culture is like Ashton Kutcher, you know. My, my culture is telling me five-year plan, ten-year plan, I got to get there. And to get there, I have to do these steps to get there. So if that's my culture telling me to do that, I completely agree with my student. He says, then gifting, you function your expertise. Let's not waste our energies on things that are not good, that we're not good at. Let's get this trajectory to get there. If that is, that's, that's the presupposition, then that's great. But what if progress, I will challenge for a moment, is not gospel in that sense. What if the kingdom of God is a little different, you know? Actually, ironically speaking, it's a little funny. I, I had this person, uh, his name is Terry LeBlanc. He's, an in, in, he's indigenous himself. And he says, the funny thing about the West is that the West tends to think of uh, progress or the way they plan out things is 
That's the future, and that's the past. And he says, the West looks at the future, and they think that the future is pulling them, you know, pulling them towards the future. And he says, indigenous populations is different. Indigenous populations face this way, and they're looking at the past. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, uh, you know, honoring of ancestry and all that kind of stuff, right, in, that, in, in these kind of cultures. And, and, and so there's an honor, so there's a lot of honor, there's a lot of thing based on that. Um, and he says, the way they see moving is they look at the past, and the past pushes them to the future, which rocked my world when he did that. Not to say it's perfect, and there's, there's probably negatives to that as well, but I fully thought that the future in my life is what pulls me in constantly, rather than looking at the past. And which I like what you guys did yesterday when you worshiped and you had some time for those who are here. That's a very important thing to do. When you reflect upon your past few years and you see the past and what God has been doing, that will help inform what the next steps are as you go. So when, you, when I talk back to the beginning here about this unfamiliar territory, that unfamiliar territory is not going to be tackled when you look at the future and you see people who are ahead. Well, that's a good model over there. That's a good best practice there. And grab those to inform the future steps you're going to take. Actually, what's probably better is looking at the trajectory. First of all, which way are you going to go that way, right? Which, what's the trajectory we've been taking so far? Because if it came from that way, the natural trajectory should perhaps be this way. Like, if it came from that way, maybe it should be coming this way, right? And there's different trajectories that are causing it. And there's also different elements of our past, our history, what we are reacting against. Um, where are we going from the positive to the negative? All those things matter in the discernment process as we listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role, as I will argue a little later further, is that did you know when Jesus said, and he was leaving? When Jesus was leaving, he says, I'm going to send you the counsel and the Holy Spirit. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to remind you of all the things that I told you. He's going to teach you by reminding you of all the things that I have done. It's an interesting that thing that the role of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily traditionally how we see the Holy Spirit in this prophetic looking future. The Holy Spirit's role, according to what Jesus described, what he's going to do for us, is a memory type of exercise. The Holy Spirit is reminding you of all that I have done. Because they're not going to have the Bible and the script right in front of them in the beginning of the church. They're, they're going to be, they're panicking because Jesus is gone, is going to go. So like, the Holy Spirit's going to be with you to remind you of things. Do we, are we reminded looking forward? Usually we're reminded by looking back, right? And so this is what I want to paint for us um, to start with, for us to get this idea of um, having this kingdom efficiency and modernity stripped for a moment. Even if you go back to it, it's fine. Just indulge me for the next little few sessions. As we think about this further, I want us to begin to think in those lines and raise these questions because we're going to be working through the story uh, next. And if you guys don't mind, this is a natural end for me. So if we can take a break and then come back, that would be good. So as we come back, I'm going to go through the story of Jesus all the way to Athens. From Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're going to go from Jesus all the way to the book of Acts in, when, when Paul is in Athens. Those are my end caps. 
where I'm going to talk. And I'm going to expose it very loosely and jumping through those texts uh, to kind of give us a picture of what it was for the early church and for the early disciples of what it meant for them when Jesus left, number one, and number two, when they had to figure out how to be a church. What happened there that can be somewhat of a model of how we navigate this unfamiliar territory? Does that sound good? 